So this week, we start a brand new sermon series entitled, Rejected by Jesus. Now, does that seem like a strange title to you? You know, don't we always hear, Jesus accepts everyone. But I want to ask, did he? Did he accept everyone? Or did Jesus actually have some standards? Because while it is true that grace is for everyone, and I want you to be clear on that, grace is for everyone. Jesus died for everyone. Not everyone receives the benefit of that. Why not? We have a lot of confusion in today's world in which we have churches saying, oh, Jesus came to earth to affirm people. I can't find anywhere where he really affirms anyone, especially in their sin. I see him affirm the kingdom. I see him affirm righteousness. I see him love people deeply, so deeply that he's willing to share the truth that might offend them, that he knew would offend them, and in many cases shared the truth to drive them away. Now, is that being rejected by Jesus? I think in one sense, yes. And I think it's important for us in today's climate, in today's world, to kind of get a handle back on what is the gospel and how do we benefit from it. Because the gospel is for everyone. But you know what? There are conditions to the gospel. There are conditions. It is not a free-for-all that everybody just comes and is blessed by Jesus and there's nothing on our side that, that has to happen. In fact, one of the most terrifying scriptures in the entire Bible is found in Matthew 7, 21 through 23, and it says this, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Now that should make you pause right there. Wait a minute, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Everybody who ever reads that needs to wonder, whoa. Because these were people who were so deceived, they thought they were following Jesus. They thought they knew him. They thought they had power in him. I mean, they even cast out demons. Come on. It's, they're, they're bringing some game that today we would look at and say, no, these people got to be connected to God. And yet he's going to say on the final judgment, I never knew you. Depart from me. That should frighten everybody just a little bit. And so this entire series, what we're going to do is look at what are those conditions that Jesus sets forward for us to be received by him? What does it mean to do the will of the Father? What does it mean 
to be accepted by Jesus, and how do we know we're accepted by Jesus? And in many ways, in order to learn that, we have to look at those who were rejected by Jesus. What did Jesus reject? What did he unequivocally refuse to accept into his life, his circle, his ministry, and ultimately the faith that he would reject because it wasn't legitimate? And so this week, we will start in Luke chapter 18 with the rich young ruler. We're going to start with an easy one. The rich young ruler. Who is this guy? Well, the rich young ruler is somebody who thought he had it all together in life. He thought he was doing great, but he realized he needed more, and he wanted to get there. And so he comes to Jesus. So look with me in Luke chapter 18, beginning in verse 18. And it says, And a ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Not a bad question, is it? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and mother. And he said, all these I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Jesus Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said, then who can be saved? But he said, what is impossible with man is possible with God. And Peter said, see, we have left our homes and followed you. And Jesus said to them, truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God, who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come, eternal life. Okay, so this is quite the encounter. This guy comes up. I I just have to picture he's probably dressed pretty well. When you're, a, you know, an extremely wealthy ruler of the people, he probably needs it to be, he wants it to be seen and known as he's walking around. So this guy shows up full garb, and he, he politics it a little bit. Good teacher. What is that? He's kind of buttering him up, don't you think? Good teacher. He's flattering him. And right out of the gate, Jesus won't have it. He won't have it. He says, why do you call me good? Could you imagine in that situation? I mean, you've you've heard of Jesus. You've seen him doing the miracles. And you're like, yeah, this guy's got something I don't. And I want it. So you come up, good teacher. He's, why do you call me good? (laughs) Oh, okay. Well, we got to start then with the question, who is good? What is good? Because the premise of the young ruler's question is wrong. He starts from the wrong place. Have you ever done that? Start from the wrong place? And it kind of doesn't matter what you do after that. You know, it's like taking a wrong turn on a trip. 
until you backtrack and get back to where you went wrong, it kind of doesn't matter which way you turn after that. You're still lost. And so Jesus immediately corrects this. Now, the ruler either dismisses the correction or doesn't understand it because if he had understood it, he wouldn't have asked his question after that. He would have stopped right there. And the key to understanding this entire passage hinges on the fact that Jesus immediately rejects the premise of the question, which leads ultimately in the rich young ruler walking away from Jesus instead of with him. And this passage gets passed over too many times, and we don't really understand what's going on here. You see, what is the premise of the rich young ruler's question? What does he ask? He says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is the premise? He believes that it is possible for someone to be good enough for heaven. He believes that something he can do is going to set him right with God. And he believes Jesus is that person who can tell him what it is. Now, ironically, Jesus is that person, and he is telling him what it is, but he doesn't see it. He doesn't connect it. Because he comes up and says, good teacher, which shows what does he believe inside. He believes inside that a person can be good. Now, does that bother any of you? Because we don't like to hear that. It, it, we really don't. But understand... In this setting, when the ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, why do you call me good? No one is good but God alone. Now, if he really understood who he was talking to, he could look at him and say, that's why I called you good. We kind of missed that part, right? That's why I called you good, because I know who you are. But he doesn't. He misses it. He completely dismisses everything that he said right there, and he continues on. And has the discussion. So in this setting, what Jesus does is he elevates the understanding of good. And you know what he elevates it to? Anyone? Perfect holiness. Perfect holiness. When he says nobody's good but God alone, he's telling you, look, everybody here, everybody comes in under this except for God because only God is holy. So he says, why are you calling me good? Why are you assuming that a person can be good. Now, don't get this twisted. It doesn't mean we can't do good things in this world. And this is the breakdown that often happens with us when we start thinking about holiness and everything. There are good acts that we can do. That doesn't make us good. You know why? Because we also do bad acts called sin. And let's just put it this way. If you pour your drinking water into the toilet, does the toilet water become clean? No. It doesn't. It just joins that which is bad. And so in this setting, good means holy. It means perfection, okay? And holiness cannot be earned. Holiness is a matter of being. You either are or you aren't. You either are holy and you are completely in step with God or you are not holy and you're out of step with God. 
And the rich young ruler does not yet understand this. And you know what? A large majority of people in our world today don't understand it either. You see, the rich young ruler might not have ever really understood this because he, he walks away sad. And so Jesus immediately rejects the premise of his question. And so Jesus said no to this man's assumption. He answered, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You see, when, when God corrects us, he doesn't typically just lay it out on, oh, you're wrong on A and B and C, and here's the correct answer. He challenges us at a core level. And if we're not ready for that, we'll just miss it, just like this guy did. And he just missed it. There is eternal truth dropping into his life right here that is just a bomb that could change everything, and he completely misses it. And so Jesus sets him up, except what happened here is the rulers missed some of the most basic and most important truths of the Old Testament that he is claiming to have studied and kept from his youth. Now, what are those important truths? Well, listen to Psalm 14, 2 through 3, something he would have known. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have all become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Now, we could list a lot of Old Testament sections. This, this gets repeated over and over and over. It is the theme of the entire Old Testament you look at the history of Israel, and what do you have? You have a group of people who won't get it right, just over and over, over. And, and you read it, and you're like, why does God keep putting up with these people? Well, you know why? Because they're us. They're humanity. Because nobody's got this down. Nobody seeks after God on their own. Nobody is holy. The Apostle Paul later quotes this in Romans 3 as he builds the case for his statement in Romans 3.23 that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All. Anybody in here not included in all? You see, once sin enters the picture, holiness is no longer attainable through action. There's nothing you can do. And, and just here's the point. If you tell someone a lie, is there anything you can do to make that a not lie? No. You can tell the truth later, but you still told the lie. You still did it. You may try to set it straight later, and you may even reconcile a friendship or, or you know, atone or, or make things better in this life, but the fact is it still happened. And with God, in perfect holiness, once that happens, holiness is lost forever. It cannot be regained through any action of the one who sinned. And so what we really get to is the rich young ruler here doesn't understand that about himself yet. He's still working on the assumption he's good. And that he just needs to be better to get eternal life. And you know what? A lot of people in today's world work under that same assumption with God. They think they're good, but they think then they just need to be better and God will bless them. They think, I just need to try harder. I'll just study my Bible more. And I'll be, we're Baptists, so we love that. 
just new Bible study. That'll solve it. <laughs> I'm problem in my marriage. You should do a Bible study. Yeah, I mean, that's just what we do. But we, we just think, we'll just try harder. We'll just try harder. We'll just try harder. And you know what? We're working from a faulty assumption that somehow our effort is going to make us holy. And it's not. There is nothing we can do. And so what we have right here is competing worldviews. One of them faulted, one of them perfect. I'll let you guess which one is perfect. Rulers or or Jesus's? And so we have competing worldviews, and they will never be compatible with each other. Okay, they will never be able to mesh. They will never work together. And this rich young ruler will never see heaven if he doesn't abandon his belief system. He doesn't need to tweak it. He doesn't need to just get better. He needs to abandon his entire belief system for the truth. And you know what this is called? It's called repentance. That's what repentance is. God calls us to repent, and we have to be willing to do that. Now, what is it that leads us? Because this is where many people get stuck today. If we believe we are good, then we won't accept that sin completely separates from God, and we look at holiness as a matter of our good actions outweighing our bad actions. I I hear it all the time. I see it all the time. Hey, do you think you're going to go to heaven? Yeah, why? Because I'm a good person. What makes you a good person? Well, because I've tried to do a lot of good in my life. What about the bad you've done? Well, I think I've done more good. That will not work on judgment day. And I mean, it will not work. You are not going to be standing before God on judgment day and him say, okay, does your, do your good works outweigh your bad? Yes, then you can come into heaven. He's going to say, are there any bad works at all? Any? Well, yeah, there was this. Okay, you're, you're out. Away from me. I never knew you. Now, the key there is that he talks about knowing him. But Jesus has to till the soil of this man's heart now to receive the truth. And how do we do that? We do it with God's law. This is the purpose of the law in the Old Testament. Okay, The law serves a purpose. It reveals the standard of holiness. It reveals our sin. And what the law does when we understand it properly is it breaks the hard heart. It stops the mouth. It stops excuses. It keeps us from being self-righteous, and it shows our sin to us before God. And so Jesus goes straight to the law. He says in verse 20, he says, one thing you lack. He says, you know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. Now, he doesn't list all the Ten Commandments, but he knows where this guy's coming from. He knows who he is. And he said, all these I have kept from my youth. You can hear, and I mean this, you can hear the arrogance in this. I've done it. I'm holy. I'm righteous. I've kept the law. Now, let's just be honest. Anybody in here kept all the Ten Commandments your whole life? Even come close? Like, let's just go to today. We, we don't. Okay, and that's what the law does, is it just reveals, look, 
here's God's, this is, the, this is the bare minimum. And the fact he has to tell us don't murder people, that bar is pretty low. And yet he still had to tell us don't do it. He had to tell us don't covet. He had to tell us don't steal. What is that revealing about us when he has to tell us these things like, you know, hey, this is just a baseline of life. You really should live above this. And we can't do it. And so he says, all these I have kept from my youth. And he says, when Jesus heard this, you ever just picture these interactions in your mind? I just see a nod. Okay. When Jesus heard this, he said, one thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. And when he heard these things, he became very sad for he was extremely rich. Hmm. Now, was Jesus telling him he could inherit internal life through keeping the law? No. Was Jesus telling him you can't get into heaven if you're rich? No. And that's, I've, I've heard this preached incorrectly in which they're like, see, Jesus is all about the poor and he doesn't like the rich. That is not that social gospel nonsense. That's not what this is. Jesus was using the law to show the self-righteous individual that he was, in fact, sinful in ways he didn't even realize. You see, we'll pick and choose, won't we? We will pick and choose the rules we think are good and the ones that, well, when we aren't so good at it, we'll make excuses. Never underestimate our ability to justify sin. We will go to any length to do it. And so, what was the rich young ruler's sin? Anyone? Idolatry. Did you notice the ones Jesus left out? You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not worship any graven image, and you shall not covet. Jesus left those out at this list. He set him up. He knew who this guy was, and he knew his sin. He's Jesus. And he left those out, and he goes, oh, one thing you lack. Now, did he just tell him, oh, no, you're guilty of breaking the first one and the second one and the tenth one? Did he tell him that? No. What did he do? He called him to repentance by separating himself from his idol. You see, that's the way God works. He's not going to just lay it out. He's going to tell us, oh, you don't think you have sin? Hey, go do this. You think you're serving me? Go do this. He will call us on our, our fault, he will call us on it in ways that, look, if this guy had done this, guess what? He would have found freedom. He would have found Christ. He, he, his whole life would have changed. Now, we look at that and we go, that seems really harsh. Yeah, it is. And you know why it's harsh? Because sin will destroy us and we will hold on to it for dear life until we are willing to go to those extreme lengths to get rid of it out of our lives. We will coddle it. We will, we, we will comfort it. We will hold on to it. And we'll make excuses for it. And so Jesus won't let him do that anymore. And so he just tells him straight out, go sell everything you have. Do you imagine he's looking around and going, he didn't have to sell everything he has. And he, but he immediately becomes sad. But you know why? Because he, this is called conviction. See, the truth has now landed on him and the weight of 
what I worship and what I don't worship and what's important to me, it all came into focus in this one moment for him. And it says he goes away sad because he, he can't give it up. And Jesus establishes this. And, and so the problem with a works-based understanding of righteousness is we aren't honest enough to evaluate ourselves. We just aren't. This guy just went from, I've kept all of it from my youth, to, oh, never mind. I think I'll just walk away. How did that happen so fast? This guy had lived in this self-delusion for years. And in a moment, he's sad and realizes, well, this is impossible. I can't. No, I, I don't want to give up my life. You see, a works-based works righteousness, we're never honest with ourselves. And so we will always, always, somebody mark this down, we will always overestimate our own righteousness. Always. Everyone in here, I'll raise my hand, I'll raise both my hands. We will always overestimate our own righteousness. And we have to remember that. Because when we do, then we start, you know, looking with that judgmental eye. And even if we don't get that judgmental eye, we still get the arrogant, you know, kind of self-righteousness inside of us where we think we're, we're good and we're not good. And so what do we have to have? Righteousness requires two things to be understood, okay? It requires a, what we could call a plumb line, a standard, an objective, unchanging standard and an honest judge who will uphold that standard no matter what. Now, who is Jesus? Jesus himself is the standard, and he is the judge who will uphold the standard no matter what. That's his perfect righteousness. And that's why Jesus, he says, I didn't come to judge anybody. Moses will judge you. You know what he means by that? The law has already judged you. Just go look at the law. You'll figure out what's wrong with you. Look at the Ten Commandments. If you come through the Ten Commandments thinking you're righteous, read them again. And keep reading it until you're like, oh, okay, yeah, I'm guilty. I got it. And so this is what Jesus does right here. The question reveals the, the ruler's arrogance. And, and so Jesus has to take him back to the law and reveal his heart for what it is. This is what the Word of God does for us in life today. Okay, this is what the Word of God does. It says, in Hebrews 4, 12 through 13, it says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. How many of you are good at doing that yourself? Right? We don't even know. We're like, why do I do what I do? I don't know why I do what I do. We don't know. This is the word of God will tell you. And here's the thing is we have the New Testament now too. We, we have the, the full picture so we can read Jesus' words and be further convicted and, and really be convinced that we're miserable. That we have nothing to offer. And so when we hold ourselves up to the world, which is what we like to do, guess what? We can portray ourselves as good. You ever notice we like to justify bad behavior by looking at worse behavior? 
You know, wherever we are, we're going to find something just below that and be like, at least I'm not here. That's what we do. So if we hold ourselves up to the world, we can be like, yeah, I'm okay. We can even hold ourselves up to a past version of ourselves and say, hey, I'm better. I'm okay. But when we are forced to hold ourselves up to the true standard of righteousness and holiness, we can only have one reaction, which is, woe is me, I am undone. And every time a person in the Old Testament and New gets a true glimpse of God, that's always their reaction. It's not, oh, this is amazing. This is the coolest thing I've ever seen. I've got to tell everybody about it. Every time they go, and I'm dead. And I'm going to die because I've seen God and now it's really bad because, yeah, I'm miserable. I'm a sinner. And I am so aware of my sin right now, I just want to die. That, that's what happens every single time. We need to take note of that. And so this is what Jesus does with the rich young ruler when he says, you know the commandments. When the ruler says, I've kept them all from my youth, Jesus shows him his idolatry by asking him to give up what he worships. And his response is exactly what it always is with people who aren't ready to repent. They look at it and say, that's impossible. How could I possibly do that? They'll make excuses. It's what we do. And so the rich young ruler walks away sad and unrepentant. But you can contrast him with the woman at the well. The woman at the well found freedom and hope and life. And guess what? She was willing to repent. She was willing to hear the truth. Was that truth pleasant? No. Jesus looked at her and said, you've had five husbands. And the man you're with now is not your husband. That was not a pleasant moment for her. And yet, she put her hope in the Messiah. And she says, you know what? The Messiah is going to straighten all this out. And he says, hey, you're looking at him. You know why? Because she was willing to hear it. She was willing. And, and so the woman was willing to repent and put her trust in Jesus. The rich young ruler was not. And what we can learn out of this is Jesus will not compromise. Jesus is not going to compromise with sin ever. Ever. Okay, there is no middle ground here. As I said, we often say Jesus accepts everyone, but this isn't true. You know who he accepts? The repentant. He accepts the repentant. Everyone is welcome to hear the gospel. And the gospel is effective for everyone who will hear it. But if we are unwilling to call what the Bible calls sin in our own lives, if we're not willing to call sin, sin, if we're not willing to agree with Jesus, then he will not accept us. And what will happen, what, what's interesting is those who refuse to turn from sin, Jesus will actually drive away with his holiness. And we'll find this in, in future sermons on this, but that's how that's going to work. There will come a point, we can walk with him for a long time, but there will come a point his holiness will become unbearable to a sinful soul and they will walk away from him. Because we either repent and turn from sin and to Jesus or we will turn away from Jesus and towards sin. There is no middle ground. And so, 
when we look at the Gospels, the number of people Jesus offended and drove away through his teaching and his holiness is far greater than those whom he accepted. Far greater. And we don't like to talk about that, but the number of people that Jesus literally drove out of his life was greater than the number of people he welcomed into. Why is that? Because he will not compromise. And he's not going to compromise on judgment day either. And so Jesus was unapologetic about this. He didn't chase people down. It's like, no, 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 just follow me a little bit longer and it'll make sense. You know, the instant it made sense is when they left. The instant it became clear what he was asking is when they're like, and I'm, I'm out, never mind. I can't go that far, Jesus. And he says, okay. And he lets them walk. And so listen to his description of what happened with the rich young ruler because this is important. Jesus, verse 24, seeing that he had become sad, said how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it, this is important, said, then who can be saved? But he said, what is impossible with man is possible with God. And Peter said, see, we have left our homes and followed you. And he said to them, truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children. That's a pretty important list. For the sake of the kingdom of God, who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. Now, Jesus is not picking on him because he's wealthy. Okay? He is saying there are conditions on earth that make it almost impossible for a person to repent. And wealth and power are two of those conditions. And it makes sense. Because those who feel like they have won in life because of their own abilities have a hard time accepting that they are completely bankrupt spiritually. And, and especially in our world today, when we have this health and wealth gospel out there that's saying, hey, if you're rich and your life is good, it's because God has blessed you and your faith is good. Guess what? That's not what that is. And so we have a hard time believing that I can have the good life on earth and be completely destitute spiritually, completely bankrupt and lost. They have a hard time believing that. Because they're like, if, I, if God didn't like me, why am I doing so well? If, if, if I was out of touch with God, why is my life so good? And that's exactly where this rich young ruler was. He thought, man, I'm good. Like, I'm in charge. I'm, I'm a ruler. I'm young. I got money. I'm, I've gone to church. I'm doing the good stuff. I think, I think I'm good. I think I've got it together. And then he hears... Oh, you, no, you got to give all that up because that's become an idol to you. And you got to repent. He says, sell it all. That's repentance. And then what? Come follow me. See, we forget about that. We like to focus on the sell it all part. And then we forget Jesus did say, come follow me. It's about him connecting with Jesus, which he can't do while this idol's in his life. So he's got to remove the idol. Then he'll see clearly to follow Jesus. And so, following Jesus requires that we face the truth that we are sinners who deserve the wrath of God. 
which is something that nobody wants to wake up every morning and think about. And so those who hear Jesus say this, they ask the right question. They say, then who can be saved? You know why they ask that question? Because they're also operating from this works-based righteousness. They, they have the same worldview this guy did. The people listening have the same worldview, and, and even the disciples don't get it yet, okay? Because that's why Peter's like, hey, we left our houses. It, you can leave it to Peter. He's like, hey, 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 I, I left house. I, my wife's back there mad at me. So we're here. We're good. But they say, who can be saved? Somebody, whoever said that, understood exactly what just happened. They asked the right question. That means somebody understood. Their worldview is crumbling on them right now because they've been taught their whole life, be good and you'll get eternal life. And then he hears this whole interaction. He hears what Jesus says and he's like, wait a minute. Well, if that's true, who can be saved? And Jesus is like, and here's your answer. What is impossible with man is possible with God. Salvation is impossible with man because our works don't make us righteous. But salvation is possible with God because we are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ who died for us on the cross, paid the price for our sin, and was resurrected on the third day. And if you believe in him to make you righteous, you will be saved. Now, obviously, Jesus is still walking, so he's not to that part yet. Crucifixion hasn't happened, but he's letting him know there is a path to salvation. It's just not what you think it is. It's not something you earn. And so if you don't want to be one of those to whom Jesus says, I never knew you, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness, don't be like this rich young ruler who believed so much in himself and loved his sin so much that he was unwilling to repent and turn away from Jesus. Turn from your sin. Repent and put your faith in the Lord Jesus. It's that simple. Now, what is your sin? I don't know. Look at the Ten Commandments. You'll find it. It'll be there somewhere. Has something in your life become more important than God? God said, you shall have no other God before me. And if something has become more important than God, guess what? You've got an idol in your life. That's the second commandment. You ever stolen something? Jesus said, if you look on lust, you've committed adultery. You see, it's not hard to find our sin. It's just our willingness to repent and turn away from it and stop trusting in ourselves for righteousness because we have none. None. And yet Jesus died on the cross for us so that we could be made righteous. <laughs> Don't be like the rich young ruler and stubbornly cling to something or you too will find yourself rejected by Jesus. Now what we have to do together is hold each other accountable, lift each other up in this. That's what our, our goal as a church is, is to continually refocus on the gospel and stay focused on Jesus Christ, to walk in faith, to lift each other up. This isn't a competition. When our righteousness is given by Jesus, then that means none of us can be more righteous than the other. 
That means none of us can have a more preeminent position in the kingdom than the other. That means we are all in this together because we all have to go through the cross. We all have to be saved by grace through faith. We all have to accept Jesus Christ into our lives as we just so awesomely saw today with, with the baptisms. Which we will have five more next week. You know what that is? That is God changing lives. That is God doing what he does. What is impossible with man is possible with God. And every time we see a baptism, that's what we see is God doing the impossible. And so to celebrate also, today, we celebrate the Lord's Supper together. Because our salvation did come at a price. It came at a steep price. And what was that price? It was the death of Jesus Christ. And the night before his death, Jesus met with his disciples, and they celebrated the Passover meal. And he revealed himself as the Passover lamb who would be sacrificed for the sin of God's people. And he took the bread, and he said, This bread is my body, which shall be broken for you. And after he had taken the bread, he took the cup and he said, this is the cup of my blood, the blood of the new covenant, which shall be given for you. And then he said, do this in remembrance of me. And so together as the body of Christ, we celebrate and remember what Jesus did for us. Looking back at the cross, celebrating currently together that we are the body of Christ and looking forward to the day that he returns for his people. We eat together of the bread. And we drink together of the cup. Father God, we thank you again for the grace that is, is ours in our Lord Jesus Christ. And God, we thank you and praise you. It's so awesome, God, the baptisms that we see. And, and God, the way you are working in lives, God, we pray that it continue. God, that we are faithful to what you have called us to do. And God, I pray if there are any here that have not submitted themselves for baptism, that they have not given their lives to you in repentance. God, that right now you would speak to their heart. That, God, they would just say to them, to, to you right now, Lord Jesus, I confess that I'm a sinner and I give my life to you. Save me from my sin. I confess you as Lord. Come into my heart and be my God. It's that simple. And, God, I pray that Lord, if there are those that are just wandering, they know you, but they've wandered from the truth, God, I pray that this be a day that their senses are again sharpened, that their resolve is restored, and God, that they start walking with you again. That they turn away from whatever may be bringing them down, distracting them. And God, I pray for each family, each person as we leave this place today. God, I pray you protect them. But God, I pray you use us too. 
God, we're praying for fruitful lives, not safe lives. We want to be used for your kingdom. But God, we want to be faithful above all. Lord, it's in Jesus' holy name we pray together.